Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good. It's great to see you here in the room. Great to have you guys with us joining every week. I feel like I see a few more new faces. And for those of you online, it's great to have you joining in with us as well. And uh, we're right now in week number three of a series we're calling Come Back Stronger. And essentially what we're talking about is this idea of how do we as the church come back stronger during the season. And so today we're talking about bridges over barriers. That's how we're going to approach our world. That's how we're going to look into this time that we're living in is bridges over barriers. When I was eight years old, I grew up on the west side of Indianapolis and my grandparents lived about 15 to 20 minutes from our house. And I remember eight years old, my grandpa was like my hero. I mean, the guy was amazing with his hands. He was handy. He could fix anything. Literally a toy would break or something in our house would break. My grandpa would come over. He just had that ability mechanically to just fix anything that would break. And so at eight years old, I remember my grandpa asking me, he said, Brian, would you be willing to come over to my house and help me take apart my lawnmower and put it back together again? And at eight years old, my obvious answer was, absolutely, I would love to do that. There would literally be nothing else I would rather do than take apart your lawnmower and put it back together with you again. He had a red lawnmower. I think red is like the universal color for push lawnmowers. It looked a lot like this. And so I remember going over to his house. My mom dropped me off, and I remember my grandpa taking me into the garage and where he had this sheet spread out and he had his lawnmower there and he just had like a couple of tools, like a couple screwdrivers or something. It wasn't much. And so piece by piece, we literally began to take all like the outer covering off and then disassembling all the different pieces of the lawnmower and putting them out on this sheet. And as we were going, I remember he's explaining all these things to me. He, he's describing, you know, this is what the spark plug is for. This is what the exhaust does. This is what the air intake does. This is why you need to have gas and oil in the engine. And this is what the carburetor is and the fuel line. I remember him just explaining all these different pieces of the lawnmower and what they did. And then when we were done, he, we began to just put this thing back together piece by piece until we finally got the lawnmower put back together. And I just remember standing back with my grandpa, just looking at this lawnmower. And I was like, yeah. It's like somebody just handed me my man card. You know, like eight years old, it's like, yeah, we just did that. We put together a lawnmower. It was an amazing feeling. Now, uh, th- maybe there's a couple of questions floating around in your head right now. Uh, for instance, now, did your grandpa, was his lawnmower broken and did he need your help as an eight-year-old boy to put the lawnmower back together again? No, that's not why he did it. Uh, Was your grandpa just really bored in retirement and needed something to do? No, that wasn't the reason either. Um, was, Was I hoping for a bright career in the lawnmower repair industry and needed the training from my grandpa? No, none of those were the reason why. The reason that he invited me over at eight years old to do this is because he wanted to spend time with me. He wanted to build a relationship with me. In fact, the lawnmower wasn't even the point. The point was me. The point was the relationship that he wanted to build with me. The lawnmower was a bridge. That's what it was. The lawnmower was just a bridge. It was just a way to find common ground and and build a relationship. 
I remember having this ridiculous thought as an eight-year-old. I remember thinking to myself, as we were taking those pieces apart and putting them on this sheet, I remember thinking, remember, remember what that is. Remember what the fuel line does. Remember what the spark plug does. I remember like, I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to forget this. I remember studying each one of those little pieces as if there was going to be some kind of a test on it later. Because I just didn't, I didn't want to disappoint my grandpa. I didn't want to let him down. And now I look back on that now and realize how ridiculous that was. I couldn't have disappointed him. I couldn't have let him down because the point wasn't the lawnmower. The point was the relationship. And as an eight-year-old kid whose dad wasn't around very much and in the picture at, the time, at that time in my life, I desperately needed that bridge from my grandpa. I'm grateful my grandpa could look and he could see me and he could see what was going on and I'm, I'm thankful that he figured out something to do to build a bridge. I don't know if you've noticed, but bridges are kind of scarce right now in our world. We have a lot more barriers that are being put up everywhere we look around us. Barriers on social media, barriers on the news media, uh, pressure to pick a side on literally every single possible issue you can think of. There are barriers being put up across political lines, barriers being put up across racial divides, and I would say even in the church. We have struggled with barriers. It's interesting, NBC News and Wall Street Journal recently did a poll of, of Americans, and they, this poll revealed that eight out of 10 Americans who were polled agreed and were unified about something. That, that right there is news, isn't it? Eight out of 10 Americans who were polled actually were unified, and they actually agreed and thought the same way on something. And what were they unified about? What, were, what did they agree about? Eight out of 10 Americans agreed with the statement that right now our country is mainly or totally divided. Did you catch that? There was 80% agreement that we right now are totally divided on a wide range of topics and issues. You felt this, right? I'm not, I'm not the only one, am I? Over the last few years, over the last few months, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. In fact, I would say to you, I, I did not grow up in the 60s, you know, during the time of the Vietnam War and uh, the civil rights era and all the, all the things that happened during that time. But in my lifetime, just in the time that I've been alive, I would say we are living right now in the most divided time that I've personally ever experienced in our country and in my lifetime. And so the question I want to wrestle with this morning, with the pressures that we feel, is as Christ followers, how do we come back as the church when our world is so divided? How do we come back as the church in a time when our world is, is just taking up sides on all these different issues with each other? What's our message supposed to be in a world that's so divided? What, whose side should we be on as Christ followers in a world that we find that, that is just so incredibly divided? What we've been doing for this series, we've been looking at the story of the early church in the book of Acts. And so if you want, we're going to look at a story, an event that happens in Acts chapter 15. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there to Acts 15 with me if you'd like. If you're watching it at home, you can uh, find it on your app or wherever else. Um, the scripture's all, all there on our Zero Collective app as well. But in Acts 15, to describe the moment and what's happening, 
is as the church begins to really grow and expand out past Jerusalem, what happens is the Gentile world, the Greek-speaking world, starts to hear the gospel. And this amazing thing starts to happen. People start to come who, who don't know Christ, who are part of the Gentile Greco-Roman world, and they begin to put their faith in the person of Jesus. And so what happens is uh, the city of Antioch, which is to the north of Jerusalem, becomes the hub. It becomes the center of the Gentile Greek-speaking Christian church. So in Jerusalem, you have the Jewish Christians. The Jerusalem is kind of like the hub or the center where it all started. And now Antioch, actually in Acts, it says that Antioch is the first place that people were called Christians. Antioch becomes the center. It becomes the hub for the Gentile church. And there's this issue that begins to erupt that divides the church. To the point where you get to Acts 15, the church is completely divided between Antioch and Jerusalem, between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And what was the issue? The issue that they were divided over was circumcision. What? Seriously. Circumcision was the issue. For, for Jewish people, uh, Jewish families would circumcise their baby boys on the eighth day of their life. And they had a whole ceremony around it. They did it. And the reason it was so important is because circumcision was the sign that was given to Abraham going all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Genesis. Circumcision was the sign given to Abraham that a person was included in the promises of God. That's how big a deal it was. It was a huge deal to them. This is how you know you're included in God's family and in his promises. Now, you say to yourself, well, what's the big deal about that, right? I mean, we circumcise baby boys, you know, before they even leave the hospital today. We do that all the time. I have four boys, you know, not a, not a big deal, right? Let me explain this to you. If you are a 40-year-old man and you live in the Gentile Greek-speaking world and you hear the gospel and the light of Jesus breaks through in your life and you put your faith and your hope in Jesus and then someone tells you your next step of faith is not to get baptized, your next step of faith is not to join a small group. Your next step of faith is to take a knife to a very sensitive part of your anatomy. That's your next step of faith in Jesus. That is a barrier. Are we tracking? <laughs> That's a serious barrier. You think we ask for sacrifice today uh, to be involved in the church? That's what was happening. And so this issue begins to divide the church and now there's two sides and they begin to heap on assumptions on each side. The Gentile Christians are kind of, you know, angry at the Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians don't consider the Gentile church really a part of their faith and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it threatens really to stop the church and stop the message of the gospel going forward. So what do they do? How do they deal with that? How do they deal with the division that was being caused by this issue. Let's go, this is Acts 15, 6. It says, so the apostles and elders met together to what? That was lame. They met together to do what? <laughs> they met together to resolve the issue. That's what they did. In fact, we know the exact year. It was in 49 AD is when this happened. What happened is from the city of Antioch, Paul and Barnabas and a few other leaders from the Gentile church left Antioch and they traveled down to Jerusalem to meet face to face, eyeball to eyeball, together with the leaders and the elders of the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. And their point, the whole point was, we've got to resolve this issue. We've got to work this out. 
we can't just allow this, this thing that's happening to divide our church. Now, I want to put that into perspective for you because you hear that and you go, okay, that's nice. Let me just draw a picture for you a little bit here. Um, so this is Antioch right here in the north. That's where Antioch was. This is Jerusalem all the way down here in the south. Uh, you can kind of see the legend here. It's 300 miles. Antioch to Jerusalem, that's 300 miles on foot in sandals. Uh, the, the, actually, the, um, the most probably generous estimates of how long that would have taken would have been 20 days. If they were really clocking along, if they had no weather issues, if they had a decent place to you know, crash every single night, 20 days is about what it would have taken them in perfect conditions to walk from Antioch all the way down to Jerusalem. That's what they did to resolve this issue. Why am I telling you that? The reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to see when there was an issue that was dividing them, they didn't stay in their separate corners and make Facebook posts to their echo chambers about how dumb the other side was. Am I preaching yet? That's not what they did. They literally walked 300 miles in sandals to get face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball to say, we've got to resolve this issue because the gospel is so important. The message of Christ is so important and what's happening in the church and what God wants to do on planet Earth is so important. We've got to get together and resolve this. That's what they did. They traveled 300 miles and I'll invite you to read the book of Acts chapter 15 yourself. It's an incredible chapter. I think every Christian should read that chapter There is so much in there that I'm just not going to be able to hit in this sermon and unpack for us. But it's an incredibly rich chapter and it's incredibly revealing. Just this is how followers of Jesus who are filled with the Holy Spirit respond to divisions in the church. It's such a beautiful picture of that. But if you read it for your own, you're going to see that they came together, they listened to one another, they debated one another, they discussed, and they went on and on and on. But the most important thing they did is, go ahead to that next slide, is they gathered to seek the Holy Spirit together. That's the thing that really marks that chapter. That's the thing that stands out, is they gather together. Yes, they debate. Yes, they talk. Yes, it gets heated. Yes, they try to listen and understand the other side, but they're seeking the Holy Spirit together. That's what they're doing. The reason I tell you that is because spiritual discernment is how the church makes decisions. Spiritual discernment is how the church is called to make decisions. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because we are not disciples of Fox News. We are not disciples of CNN. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And the way that we make decisions is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is what we go to for direction. That's what we submit to. That's how we make decisions. In fact, our leadership team as a church, uh, we call them our, our leadership team. They're the spiritual elders of our church. I say at the beginning of every one of our meetings the last couple of years, because it's just been impressed to me so, hard, so strongly, is I, I say to them on a regular basis, you guys, we are the spiritual discernment community of this church. 
That's what we are as a leadership team. We're the spiritual discernment body of the church. In other words, you're not here just to bring your own good ideas to the table. You're not here to just debate your own position of what you personally think. You're here to gather together to seek the Holy Spirit and, and to do some spiritual discernment on behalf of the church together. That's how, we're, we're supposed to be different as the church. We are supposed to be different. We're supposed to even come to the, the place of discernment in a different way than the rest of the world does. And that's what they do. And so what comes out of that? What comes out of this time? Uh, what, what, they, what they do is called um, this gathering in Jerusalem. Yeah, scholars and theologians call it the Jerusalem Council, which sounds kind of like, dun, dun, dun. I don't know, it just sounds so dramatic and heady. But essentially what they do is they just model for the church, here's how we resolve Issues. Here's how we work through divisions that are happening in the church. And so the Jerusalem Council meets, and what they do in Acts 15, they decide to write a letter. And they say, Paul and Barnabas, we want you to travel the 300 miles back with a few other people. For, you know, we want you to go back to Antioch, and we want you to read this letter from the Jerusalem Council. And this letter is a bridge. That's what it is. It's an attempt to find some common ground. It's an attempt to build a bridge across this divide to resolve this issue that's happening. Now, what's amazing is we actually have that letter. We have it in its entirety in Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to read you the whole letter, but I'm going I'm to read you just a, a couple verses of it. In this letter they send back to Antioch, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Stop. Let that sink in. Why did they say that? Because that's how the church makes decisions. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It wasn't like, yeah, we got together and we debated some stuff and then we took a vote. No, like we, it's, we discerned, we came together, we prayed, we sought the Lord, the word of God and the Holy Spirit were where we went to for direction. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality, you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And that's how they end it. Now, let me help you read between the lines there. What, they, what they're not saying is, hey, you have to take a knife to some sensitive part of your body. They, they literally, if you, if you uh, do some study on each one of these things they ask about, abstaining from food, sacrifice to idols, those things that they list and talk about there, each one of those had significant moral implications for the culture, especially the culture in the Greco-Roman world of, of idol worship and temples that have been set up in the world. That's what it had to do with it. So, so basically they're saying, hey, this thing that we've held so tightly to, it's literally been the mark, circumcision, the sign that you are included in God's promises. We recognize that that's now transferred into putting your faith and your trust in, your per, in the person of Jesus for salvation. That the promises of God have been transferred to us, not through our good works, not through anything we've done physically, but through the person of Jesus. So we're going to let that one go. We don't want that to be a barrier any longer. We want to build a bridge. And so can we just get some agreement around some of these moral issues that have significant moral implications for our shared life together? Can we just agree on those things? It's this beautiful, brilliant moment in the life of the early church. And from this moment, the church is unified again, and the message of the gospel is clearly presented, and then the church continues to spread and go throughout the world as we know it. Now, does that mean everybody agreed? 
Mm -mm. Nope. That mean everybody voted the same? No. But the way the church comes to a place of decision is through spiritual discernment, the word of God, and the Holy Spirit. Can we fast forward to 2020 for a moment? Can we, can we go there? I guess you're in the room, so that's the, and you're watching online. I guess you can turn it off. But uh, let's, let's fast forward to 2020 for a moment. Let's just kind of talk about what does it mean to live as a Christian in a divided world? When you find yourself in a time such as this, what does it mean to live as a Christian and to live and to have a faithful witness to God in a divided world? What does that mean? The uh, first thing I, I want you to kind of see is that Jesus himself is the bridge between God and us. Jesus himself was a bridge between God and you and I and our brokenness and in our sin. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were still a mess, lying face down in the gutter, while we still had done nothing to clean up our act or to be deserving, that's when God demonstrated his love for us in the person of Jesus being sent to die on a cross for our sins. That's how God demonstrated his love for us. And so the, the basic understanding we have is that the whole message of the gospel, is the essence of it is that God built a bridge to us in Jesus. That's how he loved us. That's how he demonstrated his love was by building a bridge to us in the person of Jesus. And so therefore, any way that we can reach out across a divide has to start with our own lives being reconciled to Jesus first. We have to get this. Deep at the soul level, we have to be reconciled to God. We have to understand that Jesus is the bridge, that we're not perfect and that we don't make ourselves presentable to God because we have the right views on everything and we argue everybody into the ground really well. It's because of Jesus and what he did to us, did for us. Jesus is the bridge between God and us. The second thing it means, uh, living in a, in a, as a Christian in a divided world means Jesus wants his disciples to be bridge builders. Jesus calls us to do exactly what he did and be bridge builders in the world we live in. He could not have been more clear in John 13. Jesus, these are Jesus' words. He says to his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So again, it's, we're talking about love here. God demonstrates his love for us in building a bridge but with the person of Jesus. And then Jesus says, the way the world will know that you're my disciples, you'll, you'll actually be very, very easy to spot in the world you live in, whether or not you're my disciple or not. It's by the way that you love one another. Not by the way that you agree with one another on all the issues. Not by the way that you vote with one another in November, but by the way that you love one another. I want you to get this. Our strongest witness to the world is our unity in love in Christ. Our best witness, the way that the world will know that we are followers of Jesus, according to Jesus, is our unity, uh, the way we love one another with the love of Christ. Jesus was a bridge. That's how God demonstrated his love. Jesus calls us to be bridge builders. And then lastly, just to make it really plain and simple, love builds bridges. Love is what builds bridges in our world. It's, it's our ability to love that actually builds 
bridges. It's our, it's our ability to take that same love that we've been shown in Christ. Love is what propels us to go find lawnmowers. Love is what, what propels us to say, I, I need to, we need to find some common ground here. How can we move forward to, to resolve this issue? How can we walk 300 miles in sandals to get face to face and say, we've got to resolve this so we can move forward in the name of Jesus? That's what love does. It propels us to do that. Now, here, here's the thing. I'm a, I know in some of your minds, this is what's going on right now. Some of you are going, well, I don't hate those people that I disagree with on the other side of that divide. I think they're idiots, but I don't hate them, right? I've had those thoughts. I've, you know, okay. I don't hate them. Here's the thing I want you to see. The opposite of love is actually not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And any psychologist will tell you that today. We often think, well, the opposite of love is like hate. Hate is active. It's passionate. It's, it's a it's a, you know, it's a very vitriolic word. The opposite of love actually isn't hate. The opposite of love is just kind of like indifference. I don't care enough to care. I don't really care to understand what you're thinking, where you're coming from. I don't have anything in my heart that makes me want to extend toward you in some sort of empathetic way to understand where you're coming from. To say, help me understand. Tell me more. And to kind of suspend that desire to sort of bark back and to go, help me understand. I want to understand what has happened in your life that makes you think that way. Love has this ability to build bridges. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's just indifference. I would say in our world, we don't want to do that right now. Uh, can we get specific? Um, let's talk for a moment about the phrase, all lives matter. I've heard this phrase used a lot lately by Christians. In fact, even over the last couple of months, I've had people kind of say to me, Brian, you know, well, Brian, you know, all, all lives matter, right? They've sent it to me on Facebook. I've said it to me in person. You brought, all lives matter, all lives matter. Here's the thing I, I want to say about that statement. I actually don't disagree with that statement at all. It's true. All lives matter. That's, I, I have no argument with that statement theologically. I think it represents the gospel even, that all lives do matter. That, that is absolutely true. The issue I have with the phrase all lives matter is that it is indifferent. I believe it's an indifferent statement. For our black brothers and sisters to, to not understand or acknowledge the real pain that they feel watching video after video after video of black men being killed, the issue I have with it is it's, it's indifferent. It doesn't acknowledge the real pain that someone else is going through. And that won't lead to any sort of actual resolve and forward motion. Let's talk about something else, COVID-19. In this season that we've been living in these last five months, every single person hearing my voice right now, whether online or in this room, everybody has lost something. All of us. We've lost something. Uh, some of you have lost family members. We've had people in our church who have lost family members during this time. Uh, some of you have lost income, jobs, business. This past week, I heard of another uh, woman who owns her own business, who's a part of Frontline, who because of the nature of her business and the time of the shutdown, she ended up having to cancel out of her lease for her business and basically claim bankruptcy. And people have lost all kinds of things. Uh, some of us have lost freedoms. Some of us more than others. 
We, we, all of us have lost something. Everybody has experienced some level of loss in the last five months. You would think, wouldn't you, that that would sort of have brought us together. You would think that would have unified us. You would have think that would have made us go, oh man, I've lost things, you've lost things. Like there, there's sort of this empathy. That's not what's happened. What's happened is as we've lost things the last five months, those, div those dividing walls have gotten deeper. It's gotten worse. It hasn't brought us together. And it's because I don't think there's anything else in this world that can bring us together except the banner of Christ. And so what does it look like for us to say, I'm not just going to be socially distant. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to refuse to be emotionally distant. I may have to be socially distanced from people. I don't have to be emotionally distanced from people right now. What does it look like to say, I, God, would you help me? Would you allow the same love that was in Christ that built a bridge from God to us while I was still a sinner? Would you allow that same love to help me build a bridge? Would you show me where the lawnmowers are? Would you show me where those opportunities are, where there's some common ground to build a bridge? Our world is desperately in need of bridge builders right now. You just don't see it. And the church, we're supposed to be different. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been reconciled by the blood of Christ. We are supposed to be different. When was the last time you saw the pain of another human being that was across a divide that disagreed or that thought differently than you and it actually moved you what they're going through? See, we insulate ourselves from that. I, I do too. We all do it. It's human. The only thing we're more afraid of than our own loss and our own pain is other people's loss and other people's pain. It's like, man, I've already got enough to deal with with my own loss and pain. Don't ask me to think about their loss and their pain and what they're hurting with. But I'm telling you, that's where in Jesus invites us to go. And that's where Jesus says, I will meet you there when you do that. That's when the gospel becomes presence. That's when the love of God becomes transferred from one person to another. That's when the church moves forward is when we're willing to go there. In my own life, uh, over the last year, um, there's been a young man, about 14 years old, who has been coming and staying with us for a few weekends here and there. There's been several weekends where he's just been with our family and in our house. And the way this happened is uh, my wife worked at a group home for kids in the foster system. And this young man uh, was, was there. No family who was able to actually even visit him he, of, of no fault of his own. He's there in this group home for foster kids. He's had an unbelievably difficult experience and, and something about him began to capture her heart. And so because of that, she said, you know, Brian, your heart should really be captured by this as well. <laughs> And that's how that usually goes. And she said, he's going to come and he's going to spend some time in our house over the weekends. And I'm like, really? I have enough going on on the weekends. I have kind of this gig on Sundays I do. It would just be nice not to have to deal with that, you know. And so little by little, this kid starts to come to our house. And let me describe to you what it's like. If you were to meet him, uh, if you were to shake his hand, extend your hand to shake his hand, he doesn't make eye contact with you. He doesn't really acknowledge you or do any of the things that you, that you do. It's, he's rude, honestly. Like, that's the way it comes across. Um, whenever you ask him to go do something with you, like, hey, you want to go jump in the car? We're going to go get ice cream. You want to do this? 
We invited him to come hang out with us. Uh, some friends of ours let us use their cottage and we said, hey, you wanna come and hang out with us for a couple days at this cottage? We'll go out on the boat, we'll go fishing, we'll go swimming. Whenever you invite him to do something, his attitude is just kinda like, I don't know, maybe, you know, whatever. He acts like he doesn't care. Like ungrateful. Whenever he has something and we've said, hey, will you share that with one of our boys? Food or whatever it is. He's reluctant to share. He doesn't, oftentimes he's just like, no, that's mine. I don't, I don't want to share that with them. Selfish. That's how he comes across. That's what you would think. That's what I thought. Rude, selfish, ungrateful. What is this kid? Are you serious? Why are we doing this? He doesn't even give a rip. What happens? As, as we spent time with him, the Holy Spirit has, has begun to work on me. And this is what happens. Love begins to kind of say, okay, I, I'm seeing something different. And as you begin to look past that wall of indifference that we all have toward other people, what you begin to realize is he doesn't look you in the eye because he feels so worthless by the things that have happened to him. And he doesn't act like he gives a rip when you invite him to come do something with him, like go hang out at a cottage or whatever, because people have been promising him things his entire life and they haven't come through. And so it's easier just to pretend like I don't give a rip than to act like I care and then get hurt again. And the reason he doesn't share with other people when he has something is because he has grown up with such poverty and such scarcity that anytime he has anything in his hand, the thought is, if, I'm, if I share this, if I'm generous with it, there might not be enough for me later. When we were at the cottage together, he, this kid, he just started, where, wherever I would go, he'd be like, hey, I'll, I'll go with you. Like if I was jumping in the car to go somewhere, for just like an errand, he'd be like, hey, I'll, I'll go with you. He didn't act like he cared that much, right? But he was like, I'll go with you, whatever. This kid became like my shadow. After a couple days, I'm like, I'm ha- this kid... my own kids don't want to hang out with me this much. This kid was just like with me all the time and little by little I started to realize, you know what this kid needs? He needs the same thing I did when I was an eight-year-old boy. He needs somebody to build a bridge. He needs somebody to love him enough to see what what he's going through and to find a lawnmower, to find some common ground and just say, let's build a bridge. On the Sundays where he's been here with us, he loves our church, doesn't even know why. I don't know why I like it, but I, wanna, I like to come there. It's like the only thing he says he actually likes to do or wants to do. I don't think it has anything to do with the sermon. I think it has to do with what he feels when he's around people who are filled with the love of Christ, being led by the Holy Spirit to be bridge builders. So the question I have for you is, where's God calling you to build a bridge? Where's God calling you to find a lawnmower, find a common ground? Where is God calling you to walk 300 miles in sandals to get eyeball to eyeball and to make a difference? To make an actual difference in someone's life by putting Christ above everything else that divides us. Our greatest witness to the world is our unity in the love of Christ. We stand with me. Let's just sing and respond. Can we do that? And um, then I'd love to pray for us.